you, worship team. Move a few things here. Okay. Well, good morning again. And uh, this uh, Christmas season, we've been doing an Advent series on Sunday mornings, looking at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, the Christmas story, really, the famous passages that we all know so well. So we began by looking at the announcement that Gabriel gave to Mary. Then we looked at the prophecy that was given to Joseph. And last week, we looked at the birth narrative itself. Then we wondered at the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, we get to Matthew chapter 2 and worship by the world. Let's uh, back up a minute, and uh, I wanted to mention something else historically that's interesting, and that is, is that the 25th of December, of course, was, was set as the date to celebrate uh, the incarnation of the Son of God back in the 4th century. Of course, we don't really know the day and the date of the birth of Christ Jesus. Some believe it was in the wintertime, and other people suggest the springtime. But December 25th was most likely selected as a response to a pagan holiday that was celebrated that day of the unconquerable sun. So while the pagans are worshiping the creation rather than the, the, the creator, um, so December 25th was most likely picked namely because this Jesus would be the sunrise from on high. He would be the true son of righteousness. And the celebration then quickly spread after it was uh, determined at that time, uh, throughout the church, and it took on more and more importance, actually, as a holiday and a celebration because of the doctrinal controversies that started to arise about the person of Christ and who He really was, and that He had two natures, that He was fully God and fully man, which is, of course, what Christmas is about in so many ways. And we believe that Jesus Christ is one person who has two distinct natures. He is divine, and He is human. Jesus is God Himself, who has taken on humanity in order to become our Savior. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do praise you as the eternal Son of glory. And we praise you that you so willingly came among us and took upon yourself our humanity, that you might redeem us from our sins and give us a promise and an inheritance with you, back in glory with you. And we pray this morning that you would guide our study of your scriptures. For your sake we pray, amen. So you can turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 12, and I'll just uh, read it first and then we'll look at it. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time that star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So Matthew's purpose in relating this story of the Magi is to introduce us to the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, who being the promised son of David and the eternal son of God, which is what chapter 1 is all about, is therefore the Messiah King who should be worshipped by all the world. Matthew naturally fits this episode into the, uh, his made the story of the Magi into the chronology of Jesus' birth narrative. And he skips over the actual account of the birth and the shepherds and some of these other stories we know. And it's because Matthew has a different observation for us and for our attention. This is a favorite story. It's a story where myths have grown about it abundantly, and we need to peel away some of those because we want to find out what the real story is. What is Matthew really teaching us from this passage? Well, a lot of it's very obvious at the beginning. You've probably noticed it. If you look in verse 2, see the emphasis on worship comes out in verse 2, we've come to worship Him. In verse 8, it's brought up again, worship. And in verse 11, at the end of the story, worship. It's about worship. It's also about kingship. As we note in verse chapter, very beginning in verse 1, we meet a bad king named Herod and the true king who comes in verse 2. Kingship is mentioned in verse 3, and kingship is mentioned in verse 9. And throughout the whole story, it's really implied in every single verse because of what's going on in the story. So, if you study the book of Matthew, you realize that really there's a couple questions that Matthew's trying to answer for us, and that is, who is the king? And then who are his people? And that's what the story of the Magi is really about. It's very important to Matthew, and it has been to Christians ever since, and to us as well, because it shows a couple things very clearly. It shows the Gentile inclusion, the inclusion of the peoples of the nations around the world into God's purposes in Jesus Christ. There is one Messiah for the one people of God that includes Jews and Gentiles. That's one reason why it's really important. And the second reason, of course, is because the Magi are a great example of taking joy in Jesus Christ. So what we learned this morning from Matthew chapter 2 that God is, is that God is bringing the Gentiles to worship Jesus, the nations, the peoples, who's king of the Jews, but yet he is the shepherd of the whole world. And so Matthew explains to us that Jesus is the Messiah by the fact that Jesus fulfills two important prophecies, the first one from the book of Micah, and the second one from the book of Isaiah. In verses 1 to 6, we see the fulfillment of the prophet Micah's word, the shepherd of God's people has come. And then in verses 7 through 12, the prophecy of Isaiah that all the world would worship him. So the Magi arrive. Let's look at the story in verses 1 and 2. And then we read about Herod's plot and the story there and his response to things. So it begins, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, 
Behold, wise men, or magi, literally, from the east come to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So it begins by sometime later, sometime much later actually. This is after the birth. We don't know the exact date in which they came either. It's uncertain. But some magi appear in Jerusalem, and they're looking for the king of the Jews in order to worship him because they've seen his star. Now, the Magi were most likely astrologers of some time, some kind from Persia or from Babylon, somewhere in that region. Perhaps they were royal advisors, but they were not kings, and they were not wise men in general, like really smart studied guys, although I'm sure they were very brilliant people. They were astrologers, most likely, and it's been incorrectly assumed that there, because there are three gifts, there were three of them, but there could have been many more. And by the end of the 6th century, tradition gave us uh, names for these three magi. Anybody know their names? Huh? You do? Who are they? Uh-huh. Hey, good for you. That's right. So those are the three names, right? Melchior, Balthazar, and Caspar or Gaspar. So, but that's tradition. It's not what our text says. But the significance to Matthew is that not is that not only are these Gentiles who have been called to worship the Messiah, but also that they're high-level diviners. You see, divination is a detestable practice, according to Scripture. It's delusionary. It's worthless. You can read Deuteronomy chapter 18 and what the Lord actually thinks of people who practice this, and He talks about how he He would not speak with His people in such ways but that he would send prophets to them instead and speak directly. So through these magi, God is demonstrating that he's sovereign over everything, both in calling these men out to himself and also to the point where he has manipulated their own divination to point them to his own purposes. He rules it all. And they observe this unique star that God placed especially for this purpose. It's not likely that it's some natural phenomenon and that astronomers and historians have been trying to figure out for, for literally centuries and have not come up with a definitive conclusion. Most likely, the star is very similar to the situation that we read about in the Exodus, where there's a pillar of cloud by, by, by day and fire by night that led the people day and night, and that was God's presence. So God created this. It's a unique thing that took place, this star that was the sign that the birth of the Messiah had come. Now, these magi must have had some connection with Jewish messianic expectations. Now, of course, what they did, which you know, people do all over the world and still today, is they just like to mix religions together and make up something they think is really cool. And so they most likely mixed in a lot of messianic expectations from the Jewish population that was there, maybe from the exile period, we don't know. And, and they, maybe they had access to scriptures But somehow they mixed this all together and God manipulated it so that they would show up and worship Jesus. So the appearance of the star, it seems like it was at the time of his birth, but again, we don't know that for sure. It sets them off, though, on their journey to Jerusalem. The star did not lead them to Jerusalem. The star just appeared in the sky. It would reappear once they got there and would actually lead them to Bethlehem. But they go to Jerusalem because that's where you would expect the king of the Jews to be born. Or at least that's where you would get some information about it and they might be able to find him. 
So Matthew is corroborating here the messianic expectations that have been around for centuries, millennia, regarding Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, where it says, His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the star, meaning that he is the blessed salvation that came from heaven. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, he's called the sunrise from on high. In 2 Peter 1, 19, we're told about the morning star who rises in your hearts. In Revelation 22:16, Jesus is called the bright morning star. And so with these magi arrive in Jerusalem, they eagerly start asking about where this king is. Where is this king of the Jews who has been born? And they've come with expectations. They come with a desire to worship this child. And they're filled with anticipation. Yet, of course, the response of Herod in Jerusalem is exactly the opposite. You would think they would be excited, but they're not. They don't share the same joy. And so we read about their response in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. So all Jerusalem is in a stir because of these foreigners. You know, it's not just three guys showing up in town. They're bringing their whole caravan with them on this journey. And there could have been many others than just those three that we think about because of the gifts. They've come to see this special king. And interestingly, the people are more afraid of Herod than they are expectant of their king, their true Messiah. You see, this Herod, he's really not Jewish, <clears throat> and that's why he's afraid, because now a real king is going to be born. This Herod was called king of the Jews when he was given the throne uh, by the empire in 40 BC, and he reigned until 4 BC. And he was helped by the influence of Mark Antony in the Senate, in the Roman Senate, but he was considered by the people a usurper of the throne not a real king, not their king. And he was very fearful of his rivals. In fact, this Herod was known for his cruelty, his deceitfulness, his ruthlessness. He even murdered members of his own family to keep his throne. And he murdered other officials to advance his political power. And so you can see why he's a vulnerable man to a Davidic king, to a real king, to the king of David who was promised to come, that it appears that these magi have come to worship. And so Herod gathers the chief priests, the scribes, to find out the answer to the foreigner's question. Where is this child, this Messiah, to be born? And because he wants to send them out to that place, and then, of course, he would send in his troops to murder this new king that would be a rival to his own power. The answer to the birthplace is very clear. It's Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem, the place of David's youth and his anointing, actually. And Scripture reveals that this is a fulfillment of prophecies that were made in Micah chapter 5, as well as in 2 Samuel 5. Jesus is the shepherd. He would be the ruler who would make Bethlehem great. He would be the greater son of David. And so we read in Micah 5, 2 and other 
verses, in verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the shepherd and ruler of his people who would guide and bless them in righteousness that's promised in Samuel, 2 Samuel 5.2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And this is understood as a prophecy, always has been, of the true Messiah who would come in the likeness of David. And so his arrival, finally, this Davidic king, the Messiah who's been promised, calls for worship, worship from all the world, worship that the Magi would perform and that Matthew puts before us. He would be the true shepherd. In contrast to Herod and the religious leaders, interestingly odd that the priests and the scribes didn't seem to, that interested to investigate the situation themselves because they had preconceived notions that this really couldn't be the Messiah, perhaps, and holds them back. But observe the contrast that Matthew is presenting before us. Herod and the religious leaders, again, very similar to what we looked at last week, they're the leaders of the people, supposedly the shepherds of Israel. But they're the ones that lead them into error and falsehood, not to truth. The magi are the ones that God picks. These people to bring them into worshiping the true Messiah. And you see this contrast between the Jews and the Gentiles, this contrast between those who hate Jesus and those who would worship him, a contrast between Herod and the people of the city who are filled with unbelief, but the Magi who are filled with expectant faith. Fear in the eyes of the people, but joy in the eyes of the Magi, the pride of man in his pomp in the city, but the humility of these magi who come. Jesus fulfills the prophetic expectancies of the prophet Micah, and that's what Matthew is putting before us. In fact, this account of the pilgrimage of the magi is extremely similar to the queen of Sheba when she visited Solomon. Perhaps you're thinking that. The story is in 1 Kings chapter 10. You can read it on your own, but it's a long story. But if you read the story, you'll see some similarities. She comes from a long distance because she heard of the fame and the wisdom of Solomon, and she wants to marvel at that. She comes with a large caravan. She's overwhelmed by the glory and majesty. When she arrives, it exceeds her expectations. She proclaims how blessed the people are to have him as their king, and she praises the Lord God. She honors Solomon with an abundance of gifts of gold and spices. And she received gifts out of his royal bounty and departed with her heart full of delight. And what does that story teach us? This is what Jesus said. He said in Matthew 12, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here, speaking of himself. Jesus, the greater king, is now here. And his arrival calls for worship, worship from the whole world, 
like the worship that the Magi would perform shortly. God is bringing the Gentiles to worship Him, is what Matthew is telling us. He brought you and me, and He's brought others for thousands of years to worship this Jesus, and there's going to be many more coming. This Jesus who is King of the Jews, but would be the shepherd of the world, of all His people. So there's more in verses 7 to 12 than we read about Herod's deceit and the Magi and their delight in worshiping Him, and then finally them returning with great joy to their land from which they came. And so we read about Herod's deceit in verses 7 through 8. So then Herod summons the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So now that Herod has the information that he needs to execute his plot, he summons the Magi privately and puts it into action. He gathers some more detail from the Magi, and then he sends them off to Bethlehem and commissions them to make a very careful search for this child king and report back to him so that he too could go and worship. But of course, he really just wants to know the precise details so he could pull off the perfect execution, which you'll read about later in the book of Matthew that we won't be studying today. And again, it seems that the issue of timing here, as he's interrogating the Magi, suggests that some kind of a correlation between the star's first appearance to them and the actual birth of Jesus. Because Herod will use this information to try to calculate the approximate age of his rival king, this child, this young baby, that he can kill him. But ignorant of the whole plot, the Magi are, they're filled with excitement to find him finally and go to worship this glorious child who would be the king. And then we get to the centerpiece of the story in verses 9 through 11. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. We'll stop there in verse 11. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. So the Magi arrive a while after Jesus is born. They're not in the stable anymore. So the family has settled someplace in Bethlehem for a time. And, you know, they went there, of course, originally for, they had to do the census uh, registration, but they're done living in the, in the stable now, and they're, they're in some type of a home in Bethlehem. And as the Magi were on their way, they're surprised. They didn't necessarily expect the star to reappear. They got to Jerusalem, they got the information they needed, and they were headed there. But the star reappears, and it fills them with the joy again, and it's confirmation from God causing them uh, to be full of joy and ready to worship in the presence of the Messiah. But this time, the star didn't just appear, rise in the sky. It was actually moving. And it would lead them to Bethlehem. And literally, the Greek says it would stand over the child, the star. You see, verse 11 is, is the climax of the episode. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So the goal of their long journey had finally arrived. Observe from their perspective just the joy of the anticipation to finally get there. They worship Him with all their being, falling down on their faces. The homage that they pay Him by giving Him gifts, 
Look at what they do. It's absolutely beautiful. The messianic age has dawned. The promise of the worship of the world has come that the prophets have foretold. That's what Matthew wants us to recognize. And then worship Jesus too. They offer him very expensive kingly gifts of gold and of frankincense and myrrh. And the Magi probably worshipped way better than they knew at the time. But this continues to fulfill prophecy after prophecy in the Old Testament. And King Solomon's psalm of the Messianic king, Psalm 72, I'll just read portions of it to you, but you can read it on your own, Psalm 72, it's fulfilled. Psalm 72, it says, May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. May his name endure forever, his fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's a wonderful psalm. Read Psalm 72 and meditate on the messianic king who has come. And then it fulfills Isaiah's prophecy of the Gentiles taking joy in the Messiah who would come, who would also be their Savior. It was read for us this morning in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son, son shall come from afar, and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come to you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isaiah 60 is also fulfilled in here. And if you read Matthew, you'll see that in the very opening of his book, in the first couple chapters, it's just scripture after scripture after scripture that he says is fulfilled. And he points us to all of these by the way he tells the stories. And so then the Magi return in verse 12, and they say, after being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the Gentiles in the episode of the, of the Magi show their receptivity to the Messiah. God is doing a new work in the world. And now God would protect his child from harm, the unbelieving Jews, especially Herod the Great, who we learn is not really that great. And so in a dream, he warns the Magi not to return to Herod. So they go back to their homeland on a different route, and they don't report. But the Gentiles find and worship the king, notice, but the Jews do not. And that's going to be a theme that Matthew will develop throughout his gospel. The Jesus has come. The, the fulfillment of the ages. He fulfills the prophecies of Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60. God is bringing the Gentiles in to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews, who is their shepherd also. This is the King of the kings, who is to be worshipped by all the peoples of the world, 
God is doing a new work in the world. This is the age of the missions. This is our Jesus. And the Magi are our example of joy and worship and homage that's to be given to Jesus. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, a pastor in Constantinople in the 4th century, meditating on this passage in his sermon, he said, let us then also follow the Magi. Let us also rise up. Let us run to the house of the young child and let not our desires pass away. What do you do with your desire to worship? Let it not pass away. Don't let it just be a text that was read and exposited this morning, but worship Him. Worship Him this Christmas, this week, using this passage and the passages of Scripture, the Old Testament, it draws your attention to. Matthew in his introduction in chapters 1 and 2 is communicating to us that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. In chapter 1, he gives an extensive genealogy to show that Jesus is the son of David. And then he goes on and talks in the last part of chapter 1 to show he's also the son of God. He's fully man. He's fully God. He's the inheritor of the throne. And then finally in chapter 2, he fulfills the prophetic expectations that surround this Messiah. And then he gives us two specific ones that are fulfilled from the prophet Micah. We now have the shepherd of God's people. He's come. And from Isaiah, that all the world would actually worship this Messiah. That age has come. And he's calling us to worship Jesus Christ as well, his readers. You know, think about these words. We, we throw them around a lot like Jesus is our king. But we don't really know what a king is like because we've never lived under one, most of us. We throw around words like Jesus is our shepherd, Jesus is our ruler. Actually, these three words are synonyms, actually. But do we use these titles or can we use these titles? Might we use them in our worship of him? I mean, what would the best king, the best shepherd, Jesus is our king and our ruler, what does that mean for us? Well, it means at least four things. It means that he guides us. And from the Scriptures, we learn that Jesus would guide us in His office as King in truth and righteousness. That's where we're going to learn it from. He'll guide us into truth. He'll guide us into righteousness. The second thing is He is with us in our distress. Third is that He protects us from our enemies. And fourth, He leads us in victory. Day after day until the final victory comes when His kingdom is full. And what does it mean that we joyfully worship and pay homage to Him? It means that we live a life filled with joyful worship on an everyday basis. And as the people of God, before the world that lives in despair and fear, like we even read about in the days of Herod. But we live in joyful worship. We also live our lives in joyful obedience to the Scripture. That's our homage that we pay to the Son, to the Son of God, to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's the homage that we give to him. And if the application of this passage is really boils down to just joy in worshiping Jesus, which it is, it's a joy that's intended for all the peoples of the world, not just for us. May this Christmas bring about for us a greater and a growing joy in our worship of Jesus, that we just love to do so. 
so that we overflow in spreading the glory of God and the joy of worshiping Jesus to all the peoples. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we adore you as our King this morning. You are the King of heaven. You are the shepherd of your people. You are the ruler over the nations. And we exalt you this morning. We thank you for guiding us as your people in truth and righteousness, for being with us in our distresses, for protecting us from our enemies, for leading us in victory after victory, onward until that final victory when you return. We pray this morning that you would make us greater worshipers, that we, like the Magi, would fall down and worship you, to give you the adoration that you deserve, being our Savior, the eternal God who's become man, the one who would eventually redeem us from our sins by dying on the cross and rising to life, returning to the glory with the Father that you had before. Fill us with joy and joy that overflows in obedience to give you worship from our lives, from everything that we say and that we do. And we pray that you would also fill us with the desire to share this with the nations, with the people around us, that you, Jesus, would gain more worshipers for yourself. And we pray these things for your glory. Amen.